0: Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash churchleaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash churchleaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Dr. Mark Yarhouse joins me for this insightful episode. As a clinical psychologist, Mark has devoted his life to researching and assisting people as they navigate the complex relationship between their sexual or gender identity and Christian faith. He leads the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton College where he also serves as a professor and the chair in psychology. In addition, Mark is currently the chair of the task force on LGBT issues for Division 36 of the American Psychological Association. He has written extensively on topics of gender identity and faith, including his latest book, Emerging Gender Identities. On this episode, Mark and I discuss gender dysphoria and the rising young people identifying as transgender, Mark shares practical insights on how we, as pastors and ministry leaders, can better approach ministering with those who struggle with sexual identity with both compassion and conviction. Mark also provides three different lenses that we can consider as we look at gender identity. It's such a helpful conversation. You'll want to share this with your ministry team and your colleagues. So please now won't you join me in my conversation with Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Mark, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. So glad to have you with us today.
1: Thanks, Jason. I'm glad I could be here and have this conversation together.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a much uh, needed and very important conversation, Mark. You have really invested your career as a clinical psychologist uh, researching, um, better uh, understanding, and assisting people as they navigate this complex relationship between uh, their sexual or their gender identity and uh, the Christian faith. Now, gender dysphoria, as we know, is, is uh, a complex issue. Uh, it's an issue that, that um, not everyone fully understands. So to begin, Mark, uh, can you help us? What do we really know and what do we not know about where gender dysphoria comes from? Yeah, so let me um, just explain a little bit about what it is. So gender dysphoria
1: is the uh, experience of distress that can be associated with a lack of congruence between a person's biological sex and their gender identity. So biological sex is usually through different markers like chromosomal, uh, the chromosomes, uh, gonads or, uh, and then like genitalia. And then that, that, uh, those markers and that, 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 uh, kind of biological presentation, uh, can sometimes be discordant with a gender identity or how a person experiences themselves like a boy or a girl or a man or a woman and if that's distressing to them we call it gender dysphoria so a negative difficult emotional state versus like euphoria right would be a positive emotional state mm-hmm. and so you asked a really interesting question like what do we know about how people get there like how does that even come about and the short answer is we don't know how it comes about or why some people experience this i would say the um the most common theory that a lot of people who specialize in this area, the, the way they tend to think of it is related to what's called brain sex theory, which is um, it's a theory of differences in uh, just development that you know, that as a fetus is exposed to testosterone, their their uh, genitalia will, will uh, uh, differentiate and, and go in a male direction. And then later in fetal development, the brain is thought to map in a male direction. And so one thought is, is it possible that at that point of development uh, that just doesn't map and they don't go in the corresponding direction for some reason, but that's a theory and you always have to distinguish theory from research that supports it. So, um, the research there is pretty mixed. I would say I'm not against it. I'm not critical of the theory, but I think you'd need a lot more research to really land on that being what's going on. Um, there's a couple other theories that are more uh, have to do with more environmental uh, experiences, like uh, growing up, like uh, distance from your, you know, lack of kind of emotional connection, identification with the same gender parent or like trauma history or things like that. Um, even parents, wishing that they had a child of one sex and they had a child of the other sex has been correlated with gender dysphoria in large studies. So, but when I say that, I'm just saying that there's a, there's been a relationship between the two. It doesn't mean it causes it. It just means mm-hmm. um, it, it's a, it's a complicated uh, phenomenon that we don't really know what causes it. So that's really the final answer for today.
0: Yeah. Uh, and Mark, so why is there, or is there maybe any explanation for why so many young people are now identifying as transgender. Um, We see this a lot, you know, in our current culture. Is there an explanation for why that's happening?
1: Well, there's, I would say there's two prominent competing explanations. Um, There is a remarkable uptick in Mm -hmm. presentations at specialty clinics in the United States, in the UK, uh, in the Netherlands, other countries have reported this. And so even in the last five years, a really dramatic uptick. Um, So I would say the two prominent theories, one is a self-awareness theory, meaning these kids were always there. They were always this way, um, but there's now greater social acceptance for it. There's language for it. And so people are kind of drawn towards this understanding of who they already are. Um, I think many people in my field are drawn to that explanation. I think, it does account for a percentage of this increase. It's hard to know how much, but I think it's a little naive to say that that's all that's going on. Uh, something else is probably going on than just um, people kind of have the social acceptance to recognize something that's that's a part of their kind of true self. I would say that um, I've, I've definitely you know met with people in their 50s or older who would have appreciated growing up today because they would not have had all the questions that they had. They wouldn't. I remember one person I met uh, was scouring like a medical library to figure out what was going on with them. They thought they were schizophrenic because they just didn't understand what was going on this experience of their gender, Mm. but that was a different, you know, different generation. And so you're not going to see that today with a 15 year old, a 16 year old, because the language of being transgender is so prominent and uh, and widespread, that they're not going to have that same level of questioning. So that's one theory, self-awareness theory um, probably explains some of the percentage increase, but I think it's naive to say it explains all of it. The other theory that kind of contrasts with that is sometimes referred to as a social contagion theory. And this is the idea that being transgender is more like a virus that people catch within their peer group, and it becomes this Um, where a young person who's vulnerable to other things, they have other things going on, maybe a background with other traumatic events or other experiences, other co-occurring mental health concerns, they're searching for a sense of identity and a sense of community, a sense of healing, and they find it in this space. And it's kind of caught within peer groups. Um, I don't tend to use that language. I think it's a bit antagonistic to, to, to reduce this to kind of like a virus or to call it social contagion. But there's been some, uh, one study that was done to kind of look at this. Uh, it was a controversial study by Lisa Lippmann just a couple of years ago. And she didn't study the, the teenagers that she was concerned about. She was t- she studied the parents who were concerned that their kids were sort of wrapped up in this identity. And I give her credit for trying to study this phenomenon. We all know something like this is going on, just the numbers. Are showing us something's going on, but the question is what's causing it. Mm-hmm. And I think she raised an interesting question. I think I, I wish the study had been done a little bit better in terms of its design, um, but I do give her credit for trying to study it. And I'd love to see more research done to try to answer the very question you're asking me today.
0: Yeah, no, 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 that's helpful, Mark. Uh, from your work at the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute, uh, what would you say are the biggest needs related to sexuality and gender identity that you are seeing in the church right now?
1: Um, well, I do think the church uh, is at its best when it can do a couple things simultaneously. I do think having um, a theology of sexuality and gender that is well thought out and anchored in scripture and um, is able to um sort of help frame and and sort of lay a foundation maybe for how the church responds to different things. I think you do need sort of a, a biblical starting point and a firm sort of scriptural foundation um, for the church. Um, but then I think that's, you also are going to need um, a sort of winsome way of presenting that to a culture that is uh, pretty skeptical of the church and sees the church as fairly hypocritical and fairly um, ineffective. And uh, um, so, what Richard Mao, um, former president at Fuller Theological Seminary, referred to as convicted civility you need, he would say that you have far too many Christians who are strong on convictions, but they're not people you'd want to represent the faith to the broader culture because they're just not kind in the way that they interact around other people. But then you have Christians who are so strong on civility, you have no idea what they believe in. So you need Christians with convicted civility. And I would just add to that convicted civility seasoned with compassion for the people who are navigating these questions around gender and sexuality. If you don't have a heart for people, it's going to be very hard for you. um, I think to really uh, be a part of their, of their journey.
0: So how does a, um, how does a church? How does a pastor, ministry leader, listening to now? How would they help embrace a a biblical understanding of sexuality that is uh, compassionate, but also has uh, you know true convictions in regard to uh, what we learn from Scripture, what we learn from from living as Christ's followers? Because I think that's the the great challenge, Mark. As I kind of you know look out across the the the, the church landscape, is you have very differing opinions uh, across the church, and everyone feels that their interpretation, their understanding, is is biblical, right? So, so how do you kind of um, formulate that as as a pastor, as a ministry leader, and as a church?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you do it individually. I mean, I think there's a Christian tradition. There's uh, there's a number of um, scholars who've contributed to our understanding of theology in these areas. So I think you'd sort of look at your uh, your sort of Christian heritage around theological uh, claims, theological anthropology, sexual ethics, and um, really have, I think what many Christians, the average Christian in the pew may tell you what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. So you obviously you want pastors who have done that homework and can tell you not only what they believe or what their church's position is or the doctrinal understanding of this, but they've got it sort of anchored in theological anthropology, a coherent sexual ethic, uh, implications for uh, different uh, topics that we're covering today. Um, So, but I don't know that a single like pastor should sort of think of themselves as a lone ranger who has to rethink the whole thing all over again. I Mm -hmm. think there's a sense in which the faith is handed on to us and handed to us. And there's a global Christian witness in this area. There's a historical Christian witness in these areas. So I think being able to sort of locate yourself as a pastor within the tradition that you're a part of would be a starting point, but then how are you conversant with the broader culture, which is very diverse. There's great pluralism within our culture and our society. How do you engage with others who disagree with you in a winsome manner with that convicted civility seasoned with compassion? I think that's often the thing that's missing. It's not that pastors don't know what they believe about certain things. They're they're reading. They're trying to stay up on things. They're engaging with people in other fields like, like me and psychology, other places, learning a little bit more about how Um, science might inform some of the discussion. It shouldn't run the show, but it informs it. We're in a discussion about that, dialoguing about these things, and then being able to sort of guide their congregation around these very, you know, complex issues, um, but in a nuanced way. Um, And then when you get to pastoral care, Mm -hmm. then you're applying some of these considerations that you've thought through into pastoral care, which there, I think it is more on a case by case basis. How do I, walk with this person. Um, There is a true north because I've been doing my theological work, but I walk with this person as they're sorting out issues around sexuality and gender. And I'm going to walk with them more on a case-by-case basis rather than give them five principles that you should apply to your life. No, I'm going to walk with you and minister to you as you navigate these
0: issues. Yeah, Mark, that's, that's so good. It's very, very helpful. What are some, as, as we're looking at this, what are some of the common misconceptions and pitfalls um, that you've observed that Christ followers um, fall into, whether whether pastors, ministers, or even just, you know, Christ followers, parents, or, you know, friends? What, what are some of those misconceptions that as they're engaging people in their everyday lives who are struggling with gender identity that they, that they often kind of cling to?
1: yeah let me let me add one thing to what i was saying and this will bridge us into sort of what are the pitfalls but i think there's lenses through which people see this topic and i write about this a little bit in a book called understanding gender dysphoria but the the three lenses are an integrity lens a disability lens and a diversity lens and the integrity lens um, focuses more on the creation stories and god's original creational intent And the idea that there's an an integrity to male-female differences that God intended at creation and it's the bringing together of those differences in the covenant of marriage that lays the parameters for what's morally permissible sexual behavior but it also speaks to the concern about adopting a cross gender identity that would go against that original integrity of differences by male-female differences And I explain that a little bit more in that book and and sort of anchor it in an evangelical theologian who writes a bit about that. But then the disability lens is a lens that says, well, the gender pieces here are probably better explained as variations that occur in nature. Um, But if you're a Christian drawn to that explanation, you would say, well, why do those variations occur? And probably you'd say it's because of the fall. So this group of people is drawn a little bit more to Genesis 3. And the story of the fall and how the fall touches all of creation including our sexuality and gender so that this group of people would see it a little bit more like hearing loss like hearing loss is you know the hearing is not functioning as it was intended but it's not imbued with moral significance it's not something you would see as kind of a willful disobedience or sin on the part of the person Um, it's a variation that occurs in a fallen world and so how do we respond to this with compassion the third lens is a lens of diversity, and this is where the broader culture has rapidly moved towards, seeing diverse you know, gender presentations as a celebration of diversity, as an emerging culture, as part of the broader LGBTQ community. And so one thing I think that pastors can do and people in the church can do is kind of locate themselves in relation to these lenses, and I actually argue to think a little bit more about drawing on the best of each of the lenses rather than picking one to the exclusion of the other. I think a biblically faithful starting point begins with that integrity lens. I love the compassion that comes out of the disability lens. And I, uh, what I think the, dis- the diversity lens brings is it tries to address questions around identity and community that are gonna be important to the person you're ministering to. So I think that's a piece that I'd want pastors to be aware of. I might not agree with the answers that come out of the diversity lens, but I have to at least acknowledge they're addressing issues of identity and community in ways that resonate with a number of people. So what are some of the misconceptions? One of the misconceptions is tied to the different lenses. Like one of the misconceptions is that this is just willful disobedience, and that tends to come out of the integrity lens that somehow a person's making bad decisions and that gets them to this place of gender dysphoria and they just have to make better decisions um so it's it's kind of like in john 9 right the the disciples come across the the man born blind and they say who sinned that this person is blind did this man sin or his parents Mm -hmm. and sometimes christians in leadership can approach this issue the same way does this person sin that they have gender dysphoria, or did their parents cause this in this person? And I think that's that's not a good starting point in these conversations. I haven't met anybody who chose to experience gender dysphoria. This is something that a person finds themselves struggling with, and they are looking for ways to, you know, respond to that. Um, but to call it willful disobedience, I think would be a, a mistake. So that's that's one. Misconception, but it's tied
0: especially to that one lens. So, as you're kind of processing through, I think those lenses are, are very, very helpful, Mark. So, as you're kind of thinking through those those um, lenses and kind of processing that, when it comes to practically. Um, Engaging with people and listening to their stories, but then also helping them—you know—we're uh, called to be disciple makers. So, how do you journey with a person in their story? Help them find their story in God's greater story. What What are some helpful helpful things that as your as your kind of life on life with people who are struggling with gender dysphoria um, that that we can do that would help point them? Um, to to wholeness and healing in their life through Christ, but in a way that's uh, compassionate? You know, what, what are some of those things that, that you see um, Christ followers, pastors, ministry leaders, you know, just friends doing that that is most helpful?
1: So one thing to think about is whether the move, the path forward in ministry is going to be to restore creational intent or whether it's going to be to Foster Christ likeness with an enduring condition, Hmm. and that probably goes back to the lenses a little bit. Sometimes adherents of solely the integrity lens tend to think that the best move forward in ministry, and that is healing, and they define healing as a kind of restoration of God's creational intent. And I don't know that that happens too often in this space. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I mean, I believe in uh, a God who can do miraculous things. But I right. do think that most people experience this as more of a enduring reality, more of a besetting condition. And so I think that more of the disability lens tends to see it as how can God be present in someone's condition, someone's life, and how can someone grow in Christ likeness with something that may not itself, uh, be healed this side of eternity. So it has a difference. That's something to think about. That's more of a ministry perspective Mm -hmm. that probably reflects a little bit of your theology. Uh, So something to think about. I would say most people um, let me, let me say it this way there. Think about your area of ministry as a pastor or a, a, a ministry leader in another way is your primary area. Like I think there's three types of areas of ministry. There's, there's people who, for this issue, it's a political identity. These are these are activists who are pushing back against your beliefs uh, and your convictions. For other people, this is more of a public identity. It's not a political identity. It's a public identity. These are your neighbors. These are your coworkers. These are the people bagging your groceries. Like these are the people delivering your pizza. These are this is just kind of trying to do life, and they live next door to you. For other people, this is their private identity. They are struggling with this and they're asking for ministry and for counsel. So one thing I encourage people in ministry to think about is what's your primary area of ministry? What are you called to? Most of us are not called to debate and engage with political activists. But if you are, it takes a different sort of skill set to navigate those uh, debates at that level mm-hmm. most of us are called to minister in what I would call that public identity your neighbor um, a, a extended family member something like that um, but we do this so well in so many other areas if someone's agnostic they're atheist they're from a different religious background it's like we t- we tend to rise to the occasion we engage with them we talk with them we recognize that we see things differently well, if you think of it that way, someone navigating gender identity has an individual characteristic that's different than your own. But think of it like any other individual characteristic that you're pretty good at relating to, and try to use the same skill set there. Like relate to them, ask them about their hopes and you know what life's been like for them. Um, I remember one pastor called me and said that a person was asking, "Hey, could I come to your church?" and they we're struggling with some of these issues they identified as transgender and the pastor hung up and they called me and said what should i do i don't have no and i was never trained in this in seminary we didn't we didn't cover this <laughs> and i said well call them back and take them out for coffee and when you sit down with them tell them this i feel like i'm meeting you at about chapter seven of your life but i haven't had a chance to hear about chapters one through six but i'd like to like Minister to them as you would anybody else who's just different from you on these different individual characteristics. So show compassion, show interest. Don't make who they are all about their gender, but of course it's important to them. So let them talk about that, but let them talk about other things, where they work, other dreams they have for their life, what they're hoping to accomplish, things like that. Um, And then if it's the private identity piece, the person who's actually asking for counsel, and you're gonna minister to them because it's a conflict. Their gender is a conflict for them, and they're trying to figure this out. You got to avoid little sound bites and memes that people do all the time in ministry, not just for this issue, but for grief and trauma and other things. People often say things like, I remember one woman who came to us who suffered from this. She brought this to her pastor and he had said to her, you need to pick up your cross and follow Christ. And she said, she looked at me and she said, "I don't even know what that means for me." Mm. And then she said, "I don't even think my pastor knows what it means, but it was a sound bite that sometimes we give to people in the moment of counseling, and it it kind of discharges our sense of responsibility to walk with them by telling them something that is sort of sounds right, like pick up your cross, but we don't actually unpack what that would look like for this person. and promise to walk with them in that journey. I mean, ministry to this group of people is a sustained presence, sustained over time, Mm -hmm. a ministry presence sustained over time, asking really tough questions, facing really tough questions together, not so much putting them on the spot, but Unpacking some of the questions that they're struggling—they want to know what does God think of me. They want to know what would God have for me. Those are the questions that they're asking as well. And so, to be able to unpack that with them uh, would be a great gift you could give.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. That, that's excellent, Mark. Um, Mark, there there are passages in the New Testament, and some people uh, wrestle with these passages that that. You know, seem to to share that we shouldn't fellowship with people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus but are living in sin, right? So, classic example: First Corinthians five eleven through thirteen says, "But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church?" Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but to expel the wicked person from among you, right? And so sometimes people latch on to these passages. What would you say to um, those who are following Jesus who believe that this passage is prohibiting them from fellowshipping with someone who claims to be a believer and is, um, you know, for example, possibly pursuing transitioning or, or wrestling with this? Okay, wow. There's a lot.
1: There's a lot in that <laughs> question. So um, let me try to unpack this on a couple of different levels. So one is, I think if a church is going to start to um, identify things that preclude them from fellowshiping with people, they're going to have to be very thoughtful about being consistent here around uh, what they're what they're saying. Because there's a lot of things that get a pass in the local church. A lot of things that people um struggle with greed and pride and um idolatry of like money and prestige and power um there's been a lot of cases of more high profile leaders in churches who are uh predatory in their behavior like there's a lot of things that i think people in this the communities that we're talking about would point to and say you got to clean up your own house before you start singling us out. And I, I, Mm -hmm. I resonate with that. I think, I think we (laughs) have to be pretty consistent across the board. If we're going to start talking about singling out people who are like navigating gender identity questions. Um, now if you say to me, um, okay, let's take that to be a a fair point and we should do better at not, coming across, like we're singling out this group of people. We want to do this across the board. Start with me. I get that. Like, I think that's the place I would begin. Now most churches do some of what you're describing through a process of like membership. Like if, if you're visiting our church or we've been missional, we've been reaching out to your community and now we're inviting you to, to to sort of taste and see what our church would be like. And you're thinking about joining. There's a point at which people tend to, um, decide will I sit under the spiritual authority of this church and that's usually the point of membership and I think that is a very important point to let people know what your expectations are for what it means for a Christian to live a life under um, under Christ as your Lord as well as your Savior and then what are the implications for the things that we're talking about here and so that's something I, I think Kind of happens mm-hmm. a bit through the way churches are are developed in our culture right now now the other thing to think about is you mentioned transitioning, so that comes back to your lens is transitioning sinful and uh, that's uh, going to be answered differently based on the lens through which you see this issue is it do you see it as a moral issue? transitioning is quite broad here so transitioning can mean socially, no medical interventions whatsoever just I've known people who like a, uh, uh, biological female who just keeps her hair short. And she tends to wear more androgynous attire. That's not necessarily from the woman's section of the store, but, um, it's comfortable for her and it helps her manage her dysphoria. So that's not really a transition, but that's, uh, maybe a partial like management of the dysphoria, other people. Like I know a natal male who keeps his hair longer. He wears light makeup. It sort of helps take the edge off the dysphoria. Like is that is that sinful to do that is a question I think we're going to be grappling with. I'd ask pastors to grapple with. And maybe they feel like it's easier when you get to questions of like surgical procedures or cross-gender hormonal treatment or things like that. But most people don't do surgeries. Only about... 25, I think, percent of people in the last national transgender survey uh, were using any kind of medical intervention like surgery. Uh, Fewer than half were using hormonal treatment. So most people do other things. And so what exactly here are we going to land on that says this would be sinful to do? And other lenses would see these as kind of like interventions that you do, medical or non-medical, to sort of uh, manage a besetting condition that the person's not able to find relief through other strategies. Um, so I think those are things that I still grapple with. I'd invite pastors to grapple with. I don't think there are easy answers to that. Um, there's not a lot of scripture that speaks to that, although there are passages that do talk about, um, some kind of cross dress presentation. Usually it's associated with, um, pagan practices of the Canaanites, but, um, that engage that also engaged in um, same-sex behavior so it's a little bit complicated when you start to get into that and I, I would that's what I would ask for pastors and theologians to help guide the church in, in thinking that through both theologically and then in terms of pastoral care
0: yeah yeah that, that's good mark now from your perspective uh, we've talked a lot about how pastors mystery leaders can can kind of engage minister um, you know pastoral care, these conversations all very, very helpful, helpful advice, Mark, uh, very appreciative of that. But when it comes to a pastor, you know, one of their, their big roles is oftentimes, you know, preaching, right. Um, you know, they're, they're in, in the pulpit, you know, they're on, on the platform and they're, they're preaching. What advice do you have for pastors when it comes to, you know, LGBTQ issues, like what arena is the best place for them to, um engage in these is it ever um helpful beneficial appropriate to address these you know in a sermon or or where where do you see those pastors and ministry leaders would be most effective um, you know really approaching these types of topics
1: yeah that's a great question so i do think it's i think most effective is probably one on one and like christian education classes and small groups like I could imagine leading a cell group or a home group where you sort of invite people from the LGBTQ community to participate, to study God's word, to pray for one another, things like that. I think those are more effective ministry approaches, but it doesn't mean you couldn't do a sermon. I mean, I've seen very good sermon series more on sexuality broadly. Um, And so there's a lot of things being covered. and this is not left left out you know i think but i think focusing on it narrowly or exclusively would be a little bit more of a risk and probably not as helpful mm-hmm. singling this out i think would be how that would come across but if you cover a lot of territory i wouldn't leave this out but keep in mind that from a whenever you do a sermon it's kind of like when i teach as a professor it's a little more top down a little more power based because i'm the person kind of teaching or you're the person Preaching it it will come across to the person in the pew as a little more top down, and that doesn't mean that you don't do it, but realize how that's experienced. So, um, what I try to do is make more emotional connections with the people in my audience, or a pastor could think of that this through their congregation. So I tend to include uh, quotes from things that I've done or uh, passages that I'm reading that sort of help the person in the pew see themselves so imagine i always teach imagine that there are students who are navigating these issues in my class if i preach i would preach imagine that there's people in my pews navigating these issues you preach differently when you start to think of people that you're you're talking about a concept but there's people in the pew and this is their story that helps you make more of an emotional connection how would you frame things knowing that in the third pew back this person's grappling with these very questions in their life or this is a parent whose loved one just shared with them that they're transgender at, at 16 right and so would you preach differently i think you'd try to make more emotional connections you'd want your church to be a spiritually and emotionally safe place for people to be able to ask tough questions about this and to not feel like if they ask questions they're going to get kind of a hammer that but no they're going to be welcome to ask those questions I'll ask those questions with you. I'll take the time to unpack those, the answers to those questions. I'll acknowledge where there's areas that we're still kind of grappling with that, either from science or just understanding what God would have us say to this specific you know, question that you're asking. Uh, I think those are fair things to do that make this um, come alive for people in a little more of an emotionally compelling way. I think those are some things that I've seen help So yes, you can preach on it, but think about some of those principles. The more effective is probably in smaller groups where people can talk a little bit about what questions they have, some of the struggles they've had in their family, ways in which they've been navigating this when they came out to their parents and what that was like for them. Those are the kinds of stories that I think a church should be a safe place to tell.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's good, and it's that idea of you know um, remembering that sensitivity, that, that that compassion, right? That Christ, uh, Christ embodied, in, in how do we address? How do we uh, talk about topics such as this, um, keeping that in mind? So I think that's that's super helpful, Mark. As we wind down this conversation, it's been absolutely um, excellent. I think very very helpful. You have written extensively, obviously, uh, you know, if you invested your, your life's work into, into these exact topics. Um, what resources would you recommend pastors, youth leaders, maybe parents um, looking into if they have someone in, in their life or if they know that they're going to be, you know, in, in ministry more than likely and in contact with people who are wrestling with um, gender dysphoria or, or gender identity issues?
1: Yeah, let me mention too. I mentioned earlier uh, the book that I wrote uh, called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, but I have a new book that came out in August called Emerging Gender Identities, and it sort of updates everybody on what's happened even in the last five years. What are some of the controversies in the field that I'm in, where are the debates occurring, hallway conversations, and then the second half of the book is on ministry postures and I think that might be helpful for some folks. Another book is um, Preston Sprinkle just published a book called Embodied, and he's a theologian, so he does uh, he does he does grapple with some of the science and tries to kind of uh, update the reader on sort of where the science is. And I think um, he does a nice job with that. And I think it's also especially good on asking more of the theological questions that um, I think pastors would grapple with where. You know, I'm a psychologist who spoke to some of that through those lenses and things like that, but I think Preston does a nice job complementing some of that in my work as a, as a theologian mm-hmm. in helping uh, Christians think through some of the theological questions that arise um, from both science and experience. And he's a very kind of winsome writer who engages with the community, um, similar, I think, to how... Uh, we've been trying to talk about this today Uh, so not so much the culture war posture but more um, what does it mean to articulate uh, a, a christian conviction in a diverse and pluralistic culture but do so in a winsome manner so i think those two books might be helpful to people listening to this podcast
0: Excellent. Mark, thank you so much again for making the time to be with us. Thank you for um, all that you do um, as you invest your, your time, your energy, and your um, expertise, continuing to learn to grow and then help us understand um, um, what you guys are discovering and uncovering so that we can uh, better navigate these with our friends, um, relatives, you know, our neighbors, and coworkers, and, and really just live out the mission that God's called us to live. So, so appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing. Um, all the work that your colleagues are doing as well. I mean, the um, as you're you know, providing these resources, the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute there at Wheaton, we just so appreciate all of that. So thank you for making time to be with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you and to your audience. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well.